Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome back to Health Matters. Thanks for uh, joining us again today. Um, our program today is built entirely around a book. Often it's the case we have a book, but this is a very unusual book in my experience. Um, written by a, a man named, a doctor named Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate is a um, physician from Vancouver. And the book is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's a hungry ghost is a, a, a Buddhist illusion. And Dr. Gabor, in a few minutes, will tell us about how he chose that title and why that, what it means. But suffice it to say, it's, for me, it's, it's a, um, an extraordinarily successful um, and revelatory account of the of the of the thoughtful development that a physician who's applied his, his attention to the issues that the both the the social issues as well as the uh, medical issues as well as the um, the sort of the a forward looking thought at what what is what does addiction tell us what 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 does addiction help us understand about who we are as humans and what our needs are. So I'm going to read from the book before Dr. Matei joins us in a, uh, for about 10 minutes, or now seven minutes, and then presumably uh, he'll join us and we'll get to talk about it. So for those of you who have an interest in understanding craving, who have an understanding, uh, have an interest in understanding brain development, have an interest in understanding um, our culture and how we deal with these situations and how and how and why so much of the war on drugs is such a colossal failure. Uh, please stay tuned. So I'm going to read from the, the back of the book. It says, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts is a Compassionate Look at Drug Addiction by best-selling author and physician Gabor Matei. This insightful book explores the scientific and psychological causes of addiction as well as the impact on the addicts treated at the downside downtown Eastside Vancouver Clinic where Matei is a physician. He widens the lens to address the larger societal problems, speaking also to the risks of the high-status addictions such as wealth and power and sex. He boldly challenges the war on drugs, proposing a more holistic, constructive set of alternatives. A riveting debate-provoking book about an illness that reaches all levels of society in the realm of hungry ghosts provides a much-needed glimpse of hope from an innovator who is taking on addiction with startling clarity, vision, and wisdom. So that's, of course, a, fry, a flyleaf kind of encouragement to buy the book, but it's, it's, it's actually true in my, in my uh, perspective anyway. 
Uh, Harville Hendricks says, Harville Hendricks is a, a, an author I know well. He wrote a book called Getting, Getting the Love You Want, A Guide for Couples. He's co- a co-founder of a relationship therapy world, a, a very clever fellow. He says, in this brilliant and well-documented book, Gabor Matei locates the source of addictions in the trauma of an emotionally empty childhood, making it a relational rather than a medical problem. Such a radical thesis of cause leads to human connections rather than traditional treatment cure. This passionate and compassionate book is filled with scientific evidence, personal narratives that should be on the shelf of every person interested in the pervasive challenge of addiction. So that's Harville Hendricks. So, as I said, I'm just going to read from this this text and then uh, presumably with hopes uh, that uh, Gabor will be speaking with us here in just a minute. So, here we go. This is um, The Realm of Addiction from Gabor Mate. The mandala, the Buddhist wheel of life, revolves through six realms. Each realm is populated by characters representing aspects of human existence, our various ways of being. In the beast realm, we are driven by basic survival instincts and appetites such as physical hunger and sexuality, which Freud called the id. The denizens of the hell realm are trapped in the states of unbearable rage and anxiety. In the god realm, we transcend our troubles and our egos through sensual, aesthetic, and religious experience, but only temporarily and in ignorance of spiritual truth. Even in this enviable state, even this enviable state is, tw- is tinged with loss and suffering. The inhabitants of the hum- hundred ghost-, ghost realms are depicted as creatures with scrawny necks, small mouths, emaciated uh, limbs, and large, bloated, empty bellies. This is the domain of addiction, where we constantly seek something out- outside ourselves to curb an insatiable yearning for relief or fulfillment. The aching emptiness is perpetual because the substances, objects, or pursuits we hope will soothe are not what we really need. We don't know what we really need, and so we stay in the hungry ghost mode. We'll never know. We haunt our lives without being fully present. Some people dwell much of their lives in one realm or another. Many of us move back and forth between them, perhaps through all of them in the course of a single day. My medical work with drug addicts in Vancouver's downtown east side has given me a unique opportunity to know human beings who spend almost all their time as hungry ghosts. It's their attempt, I believe, to escape the hell realm of overwhelming fear, rage, and despair. The painful longing in their hearts reflects something of the emptiness that may also be experienced by people with apparently happier lives. Those whom we dismiss as junkies are not creatures from a different world. Only men and women mired in the extreme of a continuum on which, here or there, all of us might well locate ourselves. I can personally attest to that. You slink around your life with a hungry look, someone close to me once said. Facing the harmful compulsion of my patients, I have to encounter my own. No society can understand itself without looking at its shadow side. 
I believe there is one addiction process, whether it is manifested in lethal substance dependencies in my down east, downtown east side client, uh, patients, the frantic self-soothing of overeaters or shopaholics, the obsessions of gamblers, sexaholics, and compulsive internet users, or the socially acceptable and even admires behaviors of the workaholic. Drug addicts are often dismissed and discounted as unworthy of empathy and respect. In telling their stories, my intent is twofold, to help their voices to be heard and to shed light on the origins and nature of their ill-fated struggle to overcome suffering through substance abuse. They have much in common with society that ostracizes them. If they seem to have chosen a path to nowhere, they still have much to teach the rest of us. In the dark mirror of their lives, we can trace the outlines of our own. There is a host of questions to be considered among them. What are the causes of addiction? What is the nature of the addiction-prone personality? What happens physiologically in brains of addicted people? How much choice does the addict really have? Why is the war on drugs a failure? What might be a humane, evidence-based approach to the treatment of severe drug addiction? What are the, some of the paths for redeeming addicted minds and dependent on powerful substances? That is, how do we approach the healing of the many behavioral addictions fostered in our own culture? The narrative passages in this book are based on my experience as a medical doctor in Vancouver's drug, drug ghetto and on extensive interviews with my patients, more than I could cite. Many of them volunteered in the generous hope that their life histories might be of assistance to others who struggle with addiction problems that can help enlighten the society regarding the experience of addiction. I also present information, reflections, and insights distilled from many other sources, including my own addictive pa patterns. And finally, I, I provide a synthesis of what we can learn from the research literature on addiction and the development of the human brain and personality. And here's our guest. Welcome, Dr. Gabor. Hello. Hello. Hi, Ned. Hi there. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Now, is, is this sounding good enough? We are doing just fine. Okay, good, because you're a bit distant. But I am going to get better. Okay, well, is that you the, are. Is, are we getting there now? Uh, well, you know, I can hear you as long as you can hear me okay. I'm okay. I, I can hear you just fine. Great. I just was one paragraph away from finishing the the first the very first few pages of your book, reading the realm of addiction, and so we've I've kind of laid out and I've sort of stolen some of your fire, Gabor, right away, sort of telling people a little bit about the meaning of hungry ghosts. But what I'd like you to do, if you would start with, and is to flesh out the hungry ghost metaphor a little bit and how you see it and how that, that image inspires you as you do this work. In Buddhist psychology, there are these six realms where people cycle through, and um, rather than seeing them as um, somehow mystical or... or faraway spiritual entities, uh, really they represent uh, modes of being or modes of existence for human be for, for people, uh, the human realm being our ordinary selves and so on. Now the, uh, in the hungry ghost realm, these creatures are, are depicted as ones with large empty bellies and small mouths and very narrow necks and small narrow gullets or esophagi. In other words, 
they can never satiate their hunger. So they're doomed forever to wander looking for external satiation for this internal emptiness. And that's the realm of addictions, which is known to all of us, because all of us at one time or another, in fact, maybe every day, seek some way to soothe anxiety or avoid through external attainments, activities, objects, relationships, or um, uh, substances. And uh, the people who are stuck in Angostra most of the time are there because they're trying to escape another realm, which is even more unbearable, which is the realm of um, hell, the hell realm, which is are uh, severely negative and... Uh, stressful emotions such as rage and terror and fear and so on. So people are basically stuck in an ghost realm because they're so afraid of their emotions, which are, to them, uh, unbearable. And then, of course, the reason why people are stuck in the hell realm or end up there in the first place, in my view, has a lot to do with their life experience. And, and just, just to tease that out a little further, you've, you've used this as a Buddhist image, or that is, Buddhists has informed your thought on this matter. Tell our listeners a little bit about, does, is Buddhism a, itself, the teaching of Buddhism, a, a significant uh, part of your own life, or is it, is it, is it simply a language with, through which you are able to, to share this thought? Huh. You know, that's always a difficult question for me, because uh, if I'm asked if I'm a Buddhist, well, I'm not. I don't belong to any particular group follow any particular kind of uh, a teacher, uh-huh. uh, nor do I have a regular practice. On the one hand, on the other hand, my understanding of the world is very much informed by uh, what I know of Buddhist thinking and Buddhist psychology. And uh, the Buddha, to my mind, uh, well, Nietzsche called the Buddha the greatest physiologist, but I think what he means is the greatest psychologist, because he, the Buddha starts off in his uh, journey by asking a question as to what creates suffering, and then he comes to the conclusion, of course, what creates suffering is attachment. Right. And attachment, of course, is just another word for being connected or, or connected to external entities, objects, substances, behaviors, people, in order to fill this emptiness. So from the Buddhist point of view, the very nature of the mind is that of um, uh, an entity prone to get attached to externals. And that's the very heart of addiction. So... I don't know of any better way of understanding addictions than, of course, the practice that then he taught, which is mindful awareness, where you can observe the the raging or or, or um, scampering and and uh, desperate activities of the mind without being hooked in by them is precisely one of the ways out of addiction. So both in terms of understanding the, the phenomenon of addiction and in terms of finding a way out, I find the Buddhist approach... Um, indispensable. I just can't put myself out as any kind of a, an example of somebody who practices because I talk about it more than I practice it. That's just my reality. <laughs> well, I, having been somebody myself who's been it, at the feet of the Buddhist teachers and, and uh, also I, I I've talked about it sometimes. Sometimes I think I talk about it more than I than I practice it as well. But at the same time, the, the richness of the teaching is is for me uh, or as I perhaps mentioned before you got on the air, uh, is it's this book is so strikingly what I've had to spend a large part of my life learning 
so that the it's and there's so many touchstones that we have in common, Gabor. That um, it's and I was just before I came on today, I was happening to, again, sort of getting ready for the, the, our talk, and I was reminded that at the same time you were a, a Jewish baby in in in, in Warsaw, um, Budapest, yeah. uh, Nazi-occupied Budapest, and you were suffering the stresses of that, and, and those consequences were happening inside your physiology. I was in my mother's belly um, as she was going through the war as well, but also her father was right in the middle of dying a really horrible death, and she was th- thousands of miles away from him and was deeply, right. deeply, and profoundly connected to him. Right. And so, <laughs> I, I mean... And, and you, through the course of your narrative, you periodically go back and mention, fleetingly at least, that you you feel that some of your own ADHD and your own tendencies having to do with your own struggle with um, these kinds of problems arose basically as this, and, you, and then you make the scientific point that the first three, both prenatally as well as postnatally, these are the crucial, crucial times. So maybe because you, you you do it so well, maybe you could help our listeners begin to understand about how we get set up for this condition. How how we get get set up to where our brain chemistry and our brain circuits are 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 thwarted by either the the presence of stress hormones, or maybe you could lay that case out a little bit for our for our listeners, if you would. The scientific fact now is that the human brain develops. Uh, very much under the influence of the environment. For evolutionary reasons, we're born with very large heads at nine months of gestation, and we have to come out of there because if we had got any larger, we would simply be incapable of being born on account of the narrowness of the human pelvis. So that means, contrary to other creatures, we're born quite prematurely uh, as compared to our mature state, and which means that most of our brain development has to occur after birth, and much of which occurs in the first three years of life, by the end of which the human brain is 80% adult size, whereas the human body is 19% adult size. In those first three years particularly, and already being in utero uh, prior to birth, uh, are crucial in which circuits develop optimally and which do not. And the parent's emotional states are actually the chief influences on the very physiological development of uh, crucial brain circuits circuits that govern our emotional life, our view of the world, uh, how we feel about ourselves, uh, whether we have enough neurotransmitters or important brain chemicals like serotonin, which is implicated in mood regulation, or dopamine, which is important for incentive and motivation, or endorphins for pain relief and love and connection and sense of pleasure and reward, whether the stress regulation circuits in our brain are developed adequately, or whether all our lives we have to suit ourselves externally, that when we're stressed, these are all um, pretty much set, if not in stone, certainly in a very hard way by the early few years. And uh, children who grow up under stress circumstances uh, are much more prone for all kinds of uh, problems. And, you know, I first discovered this when I was diagnosed in my early 50s with ADD, been the traditional medical explanation that ADD is a genetically inherited disorder never made sense to me. And of course, nor can it explain why there's such a burgeoning of childhood disorders now. I mean, genetics can't explain why there's so much autism now, why there's so much ADHD, so many millions of kids are being medicated, 
oppositional, defiant, disorder, conduct disorders, Asperger's, Tourette's, and so on and so forth. And, and the only way to understand it is if you recognize that when the early parenting environment is very stressed, the child's brain doesn't develop properly. And what's happened to the parenting environment in North America in the last number of decades, it's become stressed beyond the limit of what most human beings can endure. And so that uh, our children are being negatively affected by social changes that have destroyed the family, the extended family, the clan, the tribe, the neighborhood, the community, the secure attachment that children need. And with most parents having to work outside the home, children don't even spend their time around the influences that nature would have meant them to um, be in touch with as they were uh, developing. And uh, in the absence of the attachment village with the uh, whole nexus of uh, nurturing adults that children used to have around them, uh, what we have really is a desert when it comes to uh, child developmental conditions, which then explains why so many uh, problems are being diagnosed now with our kids, not any kind of genetic explosion. And when it comes to addicts in particular, if you look at the literature on addiction, and that is to say the large-scale studies, as with my own experience with patients in the downtown east side of Vancouver, these people are almost invariably uh, brought up under uh, stresses that most of us can't even imagine, and I mean specifically abuse. So the more, the more you're, you're moving in and out a little bit. Are you are you moving back and forth in front of a microphone or is? Oh no no I'm uh, just just maybe how uh, I'm holding the phone close <laughs> to my mouth. Is that any better right now? That's better. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm just not keeping conscious enough of my movements as I'm talking to you. Sure. Anyway, so the point is that the addicted brain, particularly the severe substance addict, has really experienced such stresses in the early years due to the limitations and dysfunctions of the parents. Uh, that, uh, and I'm not talking about whether parents love their kids or not, by the way, or whether they try and do their best. I'm talking about the stresses that the parents are under, but specifically the vast majority of street-level substance injection users were actually abused in childhood. That's beyond any shadow of doubt. And so under such conditions, the brain just doesn't develop the way it needs to. So there's 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 and, and and to read your book is to is to hear you come back at this this theme again and again and again that this this theme that you've just shared with us that the the lack of brain development or the aberrant brain development is is in its again this is not just a conclusion or a or a a um, a supposition on the basis of what you're speaking about. You're, you use quite a, in the book. You use quite a bit of uh, you know pertinent research, whether it's research with uh, with rats and other and monkeys and things. But you also talk about research with humans. Absolutely. And well, you know what? I'm tempted to say it's not brain science, but actually it is brain science uh, because that's the state of the art brain science now. Is that the human brain develops in response to the environment, and uh, the more stressed the environment is, the less optimal is the brain development of the child in, in significant areas, and that's what sets up the template for addiction later on, mm-hmm. so that both the emotional needs that the addiction is meant to soothe, but also the physiology of the brain that the addiction um, that makes the person prone to addiction are set up by early childhood adversity. It, it, it would be easy for a listener to think, well, to, to think, well, you know, people are obviously doing the best they can and so on, and so they they can't, obviously they can't take responsibility for the society at large. They can take responsibility for what, you know, to do the best they can, and yet they're going to wonder, is what you're saying so broad that 
that in other words you we we don't really have a, a way of making a great deal of difference in the in this situation with regard to this development or if there is a way we can make a sub- substantial difference both in in the early stages obviously we want to give as much attention as we can but where where does it where does a parent go to learn it say, say a new parent who's maybe listening to well, our you program. know uh, i can talk, talk about two case examples one is my own as a parent you know mm-hmm. and if i had known this stuff when I was first a young parent, if I really had known it and taken it to heart, uh, I would not have been a workaholic physician. I really would have... My commitment, as far as I understood it, was to the welfare of my children, but that's not how I lived. And part of it was because I, I was very driven as an individual, but partly because I just didn't know. I thought that loving my kids was enough, but it's not enough. You know, The love that I feel is not necessarily what the child experiences if I'm absent and driven and absent-minded when I'm around them. Right. So, you know, it's just on that simple level. And I also would have made sure that uh, the stresses in my marriage I would have dealt with far more, um, in a far more committed fashion and, and, and would have sought help rather than just assuming that because the parents love the kids, everything's going to be okay, even if the environment at home is very, very stressed, such as it was in my marriage to my dear wife for 40 years now, but we had our difficulties when our kids were small. The second case example is, is the very well-known book, um, A Beautiful Boy by David Schiff, mm-hmm. which has uh, been a bestseller in the States and, and deservedly so. And, and, and David talks about his son, Nick's uh, crystal meth addiction. Mm. And he's seeking all the answers as to what this is all about. When you read the book, it's clear what it's about. This kid was a highly sensitive child whose parents went through a very rancorous divorce when he was, very sm- when he was small. And, and, and under those conditions... The child is likely to develop ADD, especially a high sensitive kid, and then he self-medicates with stimulants. You know, so uh, I'm sure David Schiff now, having talked to him a little bit, but having also read his uh, beautifully written and, and very poignant books, had he known all this stuff, he would have lived his life differently as well. So individual parents can make a difference just by being more conscious. We need to slip away, Gabor. We've got to take a little PSA break. Please hang with us, if you will. We'll be back with you. We're at Health Matters. We're at uh, Sun FM 91.3 in Sonoma. So please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a minute or two. Tonight on the town, on the 20, hear what's happening in Sonoma. Hey, it's Ken Brown from The Morning Show. It's tonight on the town. It's the 14th of April. Community Services and Environmental Commission meets tonight, 6.30 at City Hall. Easy Cool is down at Mondo at 7 p.m. Kai DeVitt Lee, classical music at the Big Three, 7 p.m. Planning meeting for the spring celebration of health care reform, 6 to 7 p.m. Enterprise Vineyards Office, 569 First Street West. That's Orchard Place. Trivia night at Murphy's at 7.30. African-style dance with Karen Devaney, 7.15 at the Yoga Community. Mom and Baby Yoga from 1 to 2 at the Yoga Community as well with Kate Coletti. And the Sonoma Valley Museum of Art is open from 11 to 5 today. All brought to you by Sun FM 91.3 KS. SVY Sonoma.
the First Congregational Church of Sonoma invites you to join us in a Big Read event on Thursday, April 22nd at 7 p.m. in Burlingame Hall, 252 West Spain Street. After viewing a movie about racism, John Lewis's Come Walk in My Shoes, you're invited to join in a discussion and share your own experiences with racism. For more information, call 935-6690. That's 935-6690. Sunday, April 18th, there will be a benefit for Haitian children, hosted by Les Maisons des Petits Sidiquigny, an orphanage in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, as well as the Silway Project. This will be an evening of Haitian culture, food, wine, music, dancing, and a silent auction. Sunday, April 18th, from 4 to 8 p.m., located at Westerbeck Ranch, which is at 2300 Grove Street in Sonoma. For more information, contact 996-4325 or 996-7546. 996-4325 or 996-7546. You're listening to Sun FM 91.3 KSVY Sonoma. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. We're talking about his newly uh, released in the United States book uh, called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's uh, I found it to be an extremely compelling book and a, a, a book of, of profound insight and wisdom and all, also beautifully written. Um, Gabor, you really, gosh, you're a good writer. Well, thank you. Um, it's my fourth book, all of which have been published in the States, but it's the first one to be noticed to the degree that... Um, I, you know, I can finally feel pleased about. Uh huh. Uh huh. To, 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 to say a little bit more about that in terms of who's noticing it and what what uh, what is that? What level? What's coming at you in that notice? If if you wouldn't mind. Well, first of all, I'm getting interviewed by all kinds of good people like yourself, people who are up to um, healing activities and and moving the world forward in their, in your own ways. And so I'm getting to talk to a number of people like that mm-hmm. as, as a game like yourself, Ned. Uh, secondly, uh, the sales of the book are very encouraging. Um, uh-huh. You know, so it actually is selling well. It's, it's selling very well, and uh, you know, given that this book has not received major media publicity, well, it's the the publisher is not one of the big boys. I mean, it's 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 a national publisher. Well, none of the big boys wanted it. Uh-huh. And that was that was one of my questions. I was wondering what, why they just. Well, it's a strange situation. You know, my books are like this book was a number one bestseller in Canada. Right. But, that, but somehow, whatever happens north of the border doesn't impress publishers below the border. Ah, I I'm see. talking about the 49th parallel here. <laughs> and uh, and so it's always a new effort to get discovered down there. And fortunately, anyway, it's happening, and I'm very pleased about it. Right. Well, it seems like, is, and is there is there any kind of et cetera to this particular book? It seems like somebody would, 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 well, first of all, this would be this is such an interesting mix because for me it's a, it's it's a it's a, it's got a, it's kind of a textbook it's kind of a memoir it's kind of it's got so many solid pieces that it would seem like that it would have a lot of use beside just being a kind of one of those books that kind of flies through the culture and then you know sort of disappears off you know as, as they as lots of books do they sort of fly by it like you know. They have no sticking power, but this seems to be one of those kinds of books that that conceivably would have some sticking power, and that 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 that, that 
courses would be built around not necessarily this only book, but this this would certainly be one of one book of maybe a two or three book group that would go with. Uh, coursework, for instance, in the in well, you know, and and uh, that's been used that way in in, in a number of uh, uh, faculties of education or, or um, addiction studies and, and and social work and so on in Canada for sure. I would think so. Yeah, and um, you know, I I've, I've been through enough of my own uh, difficulties to have searched deeply as to what that's been all about in my life, uh-huh. and uh, hence the books I write tend to go deep. And for that reason, they they, stand, they tend to hold and, and stick with people. And uh, my first book was published uh, 10 years ago now, but it's still being reprinted in the States and in Canada. And uh, Give us the titles of these books. Not to mention the others as well. Well, the first book I wrote uh, was an attention deficit disorder, which again, I don't see, which is a major risk factor for addiction, by the way, but I see it as the biophysiological and psychological response to early stress rather than as a genetic disease, which is the traditional, in my view, very shallow medical point of view. And what um, what that perspective on ADD, but also on addiction, offers is although it requires people and parents and teachers to look at how look at how we're handling themselves or how we, hand, how we handle kids, at the same time, rooted as it is in brain science, it also takes into account the possibilities of, of, of brain development even later on in life. Because although these circuits are largely set early, they're not set in stone, as I said earlier, so that neuroplasticity, the capacity of the brain to develop new circuits, uh, is very much with us. But for that, we have to ask not how do you treat symptoms, but how do you help a person develop? And that depends on providing them with the right conditions. And, that depend- and that's true for ADD, children or adults and so on, and also for addicted people at any age. Because we know from all kinds of studies that providing the right environment will actually promote the right kind of brain development, even in older people. So that's the first thing. And the second book is called When the Body... You know, in the United States, that book is called Scattered. In Canada, it was called Scattered Minds, but the American publisher decided to drop the word mind for reasons only known to themselves. So it's called Scattered. Right. And the second book is on the mind-body unity and health and illness, and about how when people suppress themselves emotionally, uh, if they're too pleasant, too dutiful, afraid to disappoint others, always looking after other people's needs ahead of their own, afraid to express the so-called negative emotions, that, because of the demonstrated unity of mind and body, will actually suppress their immune systems and uh, impair their nervous systems, thereby setting up the template for all kinds of chronic illnesses from cancer to multiple sclerosis to ALS to any kind of autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis. And, and so give on. us the title of that book again? It's called When the Body Says No, Understanding uh-huh. the Stress Disease Connection. Ah, okay. And I'd love to talk to you about that book someday. And uh, then there's a third book prior to Hungry Ghost, which is uh, called Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers, and it's about the phenomena in our culture, which again is a major driving factor of addiction, is that because of the breakdown of the extended family and clan, tribe, community, uh, and even the nuclear family that I mentioned earlier, children having an absolute need to attach to somebody will, just like a duckling who in the absence of the mother duck will imprint on anything that moves, the human child will also imprint on whoever's around. In our case, in our culture, children being around other kids most of the time, they imprint on other kids. And now they become each other's models and caregivers and nurturers, supposedly, rather than the adults, which means that 
they stay immature and all kinds of behavior and developmental problems follow the solution again, whether it's to ADHD, whether it's to stress, whether it's to addiction, or to these parenting issues, is always that the attachments with the caregivers, with the adult nurturing caregivers, have to be solid and they have to be um, based on the parent taking care of the child and not the other way around. So that really all my books come out of the uh, perspective of the importance of early attachments and the importance of relationships for our mental and emotional and uh, physiological health. Well, when I, myself, I told you in an email before that I'd had a a bunch of experience in in, uh, uh, working with... uh, the Gestalt world and working with the world of uh, of um, uh, the Alexander Lowen world, which is the right. expressive, the, the the basic, the basically the training of emotional ex- and and re- the re- the revel- revealing and the the expression of the emotional fields in all kinds of different forms, and oftentimes the sort of hyper expression is a way of kind of almost like shocking the system to wake things up to sort of. Open the open the doors of both perception, but also open, open the the permission slips, if you will, to to experience sort of different the different realms of the emotional field. I, I in your this particular work, I don't read you, per, you know, suggesting any of that kind of intervention. And I'm wondering if, in, as a practical matter, if in the environment that you're in, if there is any sort of any. In perhaps this, any kind of bioenergetic intention, or if there's any kind of experiential educational processes. I mean, obviously, you're a physician. You're functioning as a as a primary care provider, and so that's probably not your immediate purview, maybe. But is well, you know, it, it, that's 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 both right and, and not exactly right. Um, I'm not trained in those methods personally. Uh-huh. That's just not my training, right. and I decided some time ago that I can't do everything. Sure. Um, but when I give addiction workshops, for example, I work with people who do body work and yoga and, uh-huh. and biogenic work. Right. We so have I, recognize, a- I recognize the importance of it. At the detox facility where I've been a physician for the last two years in Vancouver, uh, we use uh, massage and yoga and so on. Now, the however, my point of view is, is that um, you have to come from many different angles. The most important thing in my mind that holds people back is not what happened to them a long time before, but what they're holding in the present about what happened a long time before. Right. In other words, the beliefs about themselves and the world right. that they uh, implicitly adopted for lack of other uh, influences early in life still run their lives. Uh, William Faulkner, the novelist, said that the past is never dead. In fact, it's not even past. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a and it's a wonderful line. It's a, it's a great line, and, and, and the work that I do is very much designed to, in my workshops, is, is, or in my individual counseling with patients, is starting to realize the beliefs that are based on the past, but which completely dominate their present behaviors. So you, you, you're, you're, let's, let's call it clinical intervention, if you will, as a psychiatrist in terms of the work you're doing, you're, would you say you're largely doing one-on-one work with people? Is that fair to say, or...? First of all, heaven forbid that I, that I should be a psychiatrist. I'm not. Oh, well, forgive me. I, I, w- I wouldn't want to be that limited. Okay. Um, right. uh, okay. Psychiatric training, unfortunately, for the most part, leaves practitioners very short of understanding human beings. Right. And it's very much based on a very narrow view of brain biology, leaving out the role of life experience in shaping brain biology. So most psychiatrists deal only with medication. Right. So I'm actually a, 
a general practitioner with a special interest in a number of areas, including addiction. I see. I see. I've done for the last well, I hate to do it, but we do need to slip away one more minute for another little quick, quicker sure. P- PSA break, and we'll be back with you here. We're talking to Gabor Matei. We're talking primarily about his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just one, another minute. Forest gardening is a recent concept in growing fruits and vegetables that mimics the mutually beneficial relationship among plants in the woods. Master gardener Johan Nicholson will tell how to create an edible forest garden in your own yard at a workshop with no charge, Saturday, April 17th from 10.30 to 12.30 at the Sonoma Library. He will explain how to establish a garden that is largely self-sustaining. For details, call 938-0127 or visit www.sonomamastergardeners.org. Hi everyone, this is Gene Johnson, founder of Elohim Christian Fellowship. I'm in the process of establishing a residential program here in the Sonoma Valley for disadvantaged men and women seeking recovery from addiction. We are currently raffling off a new scooter to raise funds help us reach out to the suffering addict. Not to mention that on June 6th, one lucky individual is going to ride off on this great new scooter. For more information, call 707-228-2056. 707-228-2056. 2056. See you around town. You're listening to Sun FM 91.3 KSVY Sonoma. And welcome back to Health Matters. Today we're joined by Dr. Gabor Bate. We're talking about his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. He's an author of a number of books on the uh, the subject of addiction and human development and brain chemistry and and issues of significant human importance as as for parents as well as for us grown-ups. And we, you were talking a little bit ago about uh, Gabor about uh, uh, neuroplasticity. Of course, we've heard a good deal about that, and even in the public press in the last uh, year or so. And as you th- as you think about neuroplasticity in terms of the the potential of brain development, you were, you were actually just before we went off the air, you were talking about how there's still room for human development in the brain area in terms of just the physiology of it, if nothing else. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you advise and help your the people you work with and how you and you look at it broadly. How, not everybody is going to be able to follow a. a a uh, a Buddhist path of development, so they're not going to they're not going to understand about overcoming uh, attachment and and the cessation of suffering and the the and that they're not going to be able to formalize it in quite that way. So if if you help them formalize it for a developmental path for somebody who's troubled in the in the and, and that you you perceive them they they have the potential for growth as all we all do. How do you kind of get them started on that process? You know, the work on uh, the neuroplasticity was originally done in California at uh, Berkeley. Right. University of California, Berkeley, by Marion Diamond okay. in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, she originally worked with rats, and she exposed rats to different levels of uh, stimulation at any age, from young to old, including some deliberately brain-damaged rats. And she found that providing rats with a better environment not only led them to be less anxious and better able to find their way out of the maze, but also on autopsy, they had richer nerve supply, richer blood supply with more um, nerve connections uh, in the 
front part of their brains. And so she said that you never give up any human being in any condition or at any age. Since then, that literature is burgeoned. And we now know that people have the capacity to develop new circuits. Now, um, in any issue of development, uh, the question is, what conditions does development require? You would ask that question if you're a gardener and trying to grow plants. The first question you'd be asking yourself is, you know, how best is the potential of this particular plant species uh, actually realized? What conditions of nutrition, soil, sunlight, and so on, and tending does that plant require? Well, the same question with addiction or with any childhood disorder or with any adult mental health disorder. And whereas in North America we tend to be fixing symptoms all the time and controlling people's behaviors, the real question is what conditions do they require? So uh, those conditions are both external and internal. And the primary condition, of course, is contact with a nurturing, uh, emotionally available, non-judgmental, uh, therapeutic caregiver who's able to offer the individual what has been called by Carl Rogers, unconditional positive regard. And wow. as another, as another uh, spiritual teacher, A.H. Almas, says that only when compassion is present will people allow themselves to see the truth. So that when, 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 a, when, we, when we're able to provide people with a compassionate environment, then their own capacities for healing and for recovery are triggered. In fact, if you look at the word recovery, what does it actually mean? I mean what does it mean to recover something? You're finding something. But what are you finding? If you're finding it, it had to be there all along. Otherwise, you couldn't find it. And so <laughs> what people are finding in recovery is themselves. The kingdom of heaven is within. That's, you know, well, that's Jesus for you. And yeah. all the spiritual teachers, from Buddha to Jesus, um, uh, essentially tell us the same uh, eternal verities, that, that, that the answer is within. So that one doesn't have to come from a Buddhist perspective. But one does have to realize that in order to find themselves, People need to be encouraged to look at themselves, but they will only do so in the presence of compassion. And I, what I love about your book so much, Abor, is is that you, you, your your instructions are, are so thoroughgoing in in that you tell the you tell the reader that that the 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 addictions are are more a desire than an attainment. You tell the reader that the that the uh, you you help them understand the, the 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 quality and the nature of the of the of the mindset of the, what some people call wrong thinking, what what the nature how how that how wrong thinking which is the way the Buddhists often talk about it how yeah. those how those things how those ideas sort of permeate the sort of the mental plane of the person who's struggling with these issues and you also put yourself squarely in the middle of that picture. Tell our listeners something about your own history of addiction briefly and and what kind of how you've dealt with it and where you feel you are with it today if you wouldn't mind sure well i've i very much have an addiction prone personality and that i i'm very prone to seek satisfaction from the outside you know i still find myself checking my amazon.com rank several <laughs> times a day you know and not that it makes any difference from one hour to the next right how it's doing uh, it's going to do exactly how it's going to do but me, me i need that external at least i I behave sometimes as if I needed the external validation. So I very much have that kind of personality. Uh-huh. And that's based, again, on that early uh, deprivation that you referred to. Right. And furthermore, it's, re- it's very proportionate the amount of discipline that I can bring into my life in terms of doing what I know will actually help me as opposed to what I think will soothe me in the moment. Uh, so, so I do have this external orientation. 
um, which most saliently in my life played itself out through that work addiction that I already mentioned, which we left my kids sometimes in the physical presence, but emotional absence of, of, of their father. Right, uh, and which, is, which is a great big piece, by the way. I mean, not, not, not to walk by that too quickly. That business of the physical presence but the emotional absence, my, oh, my, how many of much of the world that I see is, is struggles with that and, and how many people come in and talk to me, parents oftentimes, and they, sometimes they don't even know how to come back to their, to their, to their emotional presence with their family because they're, they're so tormented one way or the other and they, they, they recognize they can't give their family the emotional presence they'd like to and yet they don't know the way back to be able to, actually being able to, to expose because, because, themselves because they, don't, because they don't know the way back to themselves is what it is yeah and the ucla uh, psychologist uh, alan shore calls that proximal abandonment or proximal separation I right. should say, where the where the physical proximity is there but but emotionally the child is as separated as if the parents were physically absent and right. it's very confusing for kids very confusing and certainly my kids experienced that so my addiction showed up in certainly in a, in a realm of work and um, and then it showed up most dramatically, perhaps, in my pursuit of the purchasing of classical compact discs, like classical music, which people often laugh when I mention that, but they don't laugh so much when I tell them that I'm capable of spending $8,000 in a week on the suckers and would leave a woman in labor in hospital when I was delivering a baby to go and get a symphony instead. <laughs> so that the drive is that relentless and that um, compelling and, and so you also, you so, also. So the issue is not the love of classical music. The issue is the need to purchase something right away in order to regulate my brain to make my brain more activated. And you also share as you as you as you fall into that state, you you sh- you you share how vacant you you feel like your in your inner self becomes, how how distracted and how how uns- how how it, it becomes like a spiral and how you get, you get caught in it and and then you 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 write about ra- racing off to this. To this, uh, these these uh, CD stores, and you become. You say that you have. I mean, this is no small thing. You 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 have five complete sets of of, of, of Beethoven of of a certain type, and so on and so forth. So you've you've really dealt with this shopping addiction in a in a very profound way, and and uh, it's uh, you can you share your pain very effectively for me anyway. To of how given my I have a similar problem, and. Um, I, I know that that vacant feeling that you get as you as you begin taken over by it and you you race off to do whatever it is you're trying to do to fulfill that thing. That, that, because, that because each time you do it, you're abandoning yourself, and so that you become more and more of a shell of yourself. Right. And externally, um, only people with deep intuition can tell. But in, internally, it just feels terrible, and of course, all the shame that comes along with it, and then the lying and and the hiding. Right, that, you, that then follow almost automatically. You say it's almost like having a having a, a extramarital affair. It, it is like that, and and then, you know when, when people talk about the, the so-called NFL vi- widows, you know, who, whose husbands are completely ensconced in front of the TV set and, and totally immersed in the football world, why? Right, because well, they're not comfortable with their own minds, and uh, and the wives literally feel abandoned, right. and or or with somebody who's always on the internet. It's that same thing in the, in the immersion in something external. So and this then, of course, the emptiness when that's not there. So the the grief that people feel, the emptiness after the Super Bowl is over. You know, and they can hardly wait to then get on to the next, so the baseball season starts. You know, and right. not that you can't enjoy sports, and not that you can't enjoy them in a healthy way, 
but but when you think of all the money and attention and energy that's devoted to them in our society, that's the massive self-soothing that's going on here. It's got nothing to do with people's real needs. Real and you and you very very carefully point out the difference between passion and addiction is that the 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 uh, passion is a, is a divine spark and that the f- and and the addiction is a flame that incinerates you say that passion is generous and uh and addiction is, is self-centered and so there's absolutely. that absolutely and 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 again somebody who's passionate about what they do and somebody who's addicted to what they do somebody looking at it not so um, intuitively from the outside you could not tell the difference but but there's a world of difference internally, how that individual experiences themselves, and also, of course, in the results of what they do. Because the Buddhists are totally right about that, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the karmic nature of intention and, and activity, that it's not what we do so much as the intention with which we do it that actually um, shapes the consequences. Well, you... You you also talk about the the you called about the bedrock fable in the war on drugs is that the drawer that the drug is the source of the addiction and as we've been talking about today, what you're telling us is is that the the the, the basic human needs that are legitimate basic human needs that are unmet that then become um, concretized or or dist- distracted or unmet. That then, so that the drug really isn't the isn't the central. And you you, you point out that the, the the drug isn't the addiction. The addiction is what we already have, or what what's waiting to happen because of this unmet need that we had as as usually small ones. So it just it'll, and as we have just a minute more, let's let's talk a little bit about the difference between what you call between abstinence and sobriety. Help our listeners understand the difference in that in those two items, if you would. It's a universal addiction process. If you look at the uh, emotional needs that are being met, the spiritual emptiness at the core, or with the neural circuits in the brain that are activated or activate addictive behaviors, they're the same, whether it's sex, um, internet, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, or whatever it happens to be. A lot of people can become abstinent as far as a particular addiction is concerned, but then they may become what the AA calls dry drunks, where they're... Uh, they're not drinking anymore, but they haven't dealt with the underlying addictive process. And then they're prone to go into some addictive behaviors, including becoming addicted to AA, for example. So as long as the addiction process is active inside you, you may be abstinent as far as a particular addiction is concerned, but you're not sober. You're not conscious. You're not aware. You're not fully in charge of your life because you're still being run by unconscious mechanisms, albeit you've dealt with a particularly harmful expression of those uh, addictive dynamics. You haven't dealt with the whole process, so that then you're abstinent without being sober. It's an important distinction, and unfortunately, a lot of treatment of addiction is based simply on abstinence rather than on promoting sobriety. And sobriety is 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 a, is a positive social wel- welfare, um, self-aware kind of process that that you that you feel is available through uh, diligent effort. In other words, so you you even though yourself you didn't stick with uh, the 12-step program, you feel that it's a, there's a, a great deal of positive benefit in the 12-step program. I, there's a lot of positive benefit in the uh, 12-step program. I don't believe they go far enough uh, right. they, in, in terms of helping people understand themselves. Right, exactly. They don't, they don't really deal with the antecedents and the uh, childhood um, experiences that lead to addiction. They don't help people fully understand themselves, but that doesn't mean that they don't offer a powerful support. Well. They do. Well, anyway, you've you've 
covered so many important things that we haven't been able to touch on, even even scratch on. This is a, a deep and powerful and profound book that I have no, I have completely understand why it's best. And I hope it becomes an ultimately huge bestseller in the United States because we have so much we need to learn from this book and from what your perspectives are. Gabor, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Ned. Bye bye. Bye. Well, I can't tell you how excited I was to to listen to. Uh, Gabor on another radio program, actually, which is why I asked him to join us today. He is it has written the most uh, ex- exciting, uh, revelatory book on the nature of human development of a certain type that I have been interested in for the last 40 years that I needed to learn for myself and needed to come to terms with and understand. And so I hope for anybody who has any interest in the general subject of human development, they'll have a chance to look at Gabor Matei's book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. So, uh, that said, um, if you cannot pacify your worries and if if you cannot pacify your spirit and you let your mind be complicated with desires and worries, your disease will not be cured. To be healthy, you must avoid anger and worry, but keep your mind happy, your heart at ease, and your desires at low levels. That's the guidance of the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Internal Medicine. And our Health Matters motto is, health care isn't a noun, it's a verb. want to remind you of our stress classes at uh, 166 West Napa on Saturdays between uh, after 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we're doing stress treatments for free for veterans and a small fee for local people. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, we will look for you next week. We'll be talking with an author of a, a book on Chinese medicine, a, really another beautiful book. And until then, I wish you well.